Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Bibliophiles as we trek along through the great questions of the Western tradition and indeed the entire world. We are today... We're today jumping into a dark conversation, just like last episode, frankly. We're just going to take a tour after having been in some sunny waters, through some stormy ones, and tackle some really, really hard, potentially difficult questions. Before we do that, I thought I would ask you, the rest of the crew, a fun, a light question, a happy one. Imagine yourself to be talking to a person who has never heard of a romantic comedy. And your task is not to describe to them all of the joy and wonder of a rom-com. <laughs> it is instead to choose a rom-com that epitomizes the genre and show it to them. Oh. Which one do you choose? Go. You've got mail. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. It's the, it's the quintessential romantic comedy. It's got a meet cute. It's got a script that is infinitely quotable. It's heartwarming and funny and delightful. And in the end, it's life-affirming and happy. It's a feel-good wow. movie so Megan, in the extreme. That's an amazing answer. Can I ask, can I interject here as the person who is of a particular age that I don't need to say out loud, what is a meet-cute? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a meet-cute is like the moment, the, the quirky circumstantial moment that throws together your two main characters. It's oh. actually not even, it's not even a, a modern category. It's a, it's an old school, yeah, it's black old school. and white movie category. Yeah. The meet cute. Like you, you, you are at the library and you turn the corner and you run into someone and you're, you know. And you're struck by their beauty and their magnetism. No, no you physically run into them and your, your books go everywhere. And then uh, the two right. of you are down on your knees. Oh, no, I'll help you. Voila, oh. a meet cute. You know? A meet cute. So exactly. it's not, okay. It's not that it's just been invented. It's that I never heard the term before. Yeah, you're just Is it also true that they've also, they've been using that term forever and ever and I didn't know it? Yeah. Yes. It's just that you're awesome. male. Yes. You're just a man. What can I say? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Um, I was going to say that one too, but I have a second. Um, while you were sleeping, while you were sleeping yeah, is so good. good. Yeah. Does it have Bullock. all the categories? Absolutely, absolutely. The meet cute is this. Uh, so basic frame of the story is a woman whose father has passed away, who's working at the. Um, do you not want me to do this? I'm just kidding. Don't tell the story. No, I'm not. So oh she's, she's working <laughs> at, um, at the at the subway system in um, in New York at the trains, and oh, yeah. the guy that she's watching every day that she thinks is so cute and wishes would propose to her, who always says hello but never really pays her any attention, um, who looks like GQ, you know, uh, he gets mugged in her presence yeah. and pushed off onto the tracks, and so the meet cute is. Uh, she, she drags his lifeless him, body right? to safety and goes with right. him to the hospital and manages to get herself into the room. And the result is everybody misunderstands and thinks that they are engaged, including his family. And it turns into a hilarious 
uh, circumstance for her. But simultaneously, there are these wonderful family scenes where she's totally drawn in and the ensemble cast, you know. Don't it's you think awesome. that, that maybe people want to watch it instead? It's so good. No, you're <laughs> right. It does have categories because it's, well, here's the categories that we had to have it's a meet cute, had to be infinitely quotable and funny. Yeah. Had to good be script. Heartwarming. Totally got all those things. Super all heartwarming. Things. Okay, so so far, we are on two of the top five rom-coms of all time, in my opinion. Dad, Emily, you've yet to answer. What are your votes? Emily, you got to go first. I feel just so at sea. Well, yeah, I mean... (laughs) Megan just like launched in and stole the the, the I basket the the I first. The correct yeah, answer. I, know. I don't know. I'm not Make much of a rom com. This I'm this isn't my area of expertise, to be honest. I'm still getting an education from Megan in rom coms. Oh, I could have like I, I have like thirteen more. Yeah, I should have given you about that. A, I got one. I got oh, one. No, 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 don't, don't give me another one. Whoa, 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 whoa. I another. Come on, you guys. Let me answer. <laughs> this is such a fun family. Go ahead. Some that I have enjoyed. Since we'll just take this in the spirit of offering up recommendations as opposed to, you know, solving the correct answer. I thought um, there's a Simon Pegg rom-com called Man Up that Megan introduced me to oh, that I yes. think is excellent. A, a more modern offering. So okay, that's what um, I had a theme. Right down, it, it, although it's a slightly risque, I think as a as a study of the genre by what it's not, that awkward moment is fun because it's from the male perspective instead of the female perspective, which rom coms usually are. Oh, it is fun. literally yeah. a rom com for dudes, um, with all of the attendant jokes. So be warned. But it is it, it's very it male, is very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Also meets all the qualifications. I'm impressed. Okay, Dad, your turn. Is the outlaw Josie Wales a rom com? No, no. <laughs> oh my Dragon. god! Hopeless. That is That's so my funny. Final answer. That is that is my final answer. The outlaw Josie Wales. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. Dad, is there a, I just have to know, is there a meet cute in the outlaw Josie Wales? And that's what made well, you Well, I don't of know it? if it's from a man and a woman, but it's a, an old outlaw and a young outlaw kind of bump into each other. Sounds <laughs> real romantic. <laughs> is that a no? I don't know how no. we could get a Fantastic. better answer to the question of greatest rom-com ever than the outlaw Josie Wales. That is so funny. <laughs> I'll add, I'll add my vote last here for Philadelphia Story. Uh, oh, that's great. Which yeah. is not only a the quintessential rom-com, maybe even the original rom-com, it is also one of the great movie scripts in any genre ever written, in my opinion. Fantastic stuff. Got the meet cute, got the comedy, snappy dialogue, quotable for days and days and days, and happens to have an appearance from a great musical legend. You'll have to go find out for yourself who that is. Oh my goodness, you guys. Well, it's going to be hard to climb down off of that mountain peak of joy into the question on the table for today, which is the problem of pain. Problem of pain, which which most of you probably know as the title of a book by C.S. Lewis of the same name, The Problem of Pain. And his his work defines the philosophical question like this. If God were good, he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. And to clarify, this is not Lewis's statement of his own beliefs. This is his statement of the question that he sets out to talk around and answer. So for for such a necessarily theological question, 
This one sure does get a lot of airtime in the literary tradition. I can't help but see it as I consider it writ large in humanity's obsession with fairness. It goes something like this, right? I'm a, I'm a basically good person, trying desperately to be kind to those around me. What justification can there possibly be then for a tragedy in my life or in the life of someone that I love? Or maybe even zoom out to a, a broader social issue. How can there be such a disparity between the median income in the first world and the median income in the third world? and a corresponding lack of willingness in the first world to go meet the needs of the third world. How can that possibly be? It's just not fair. Haven't we grown past this kind of selfishness and self-centeredness and cruelty? But I think that even the question belies a foundational understanding that pain is, is going nowhere in this world under the sun. Whether one sees in the problem of pain a tenet of the natural world, a philosophical quandary, or a cruel god... This particular problem is one with no earthly solution. And as a result, and this is where it kind of touches down into our world of, of literature and art, nearly all types of conflict, whether they're personal or artistic, are rooted in this question and have it as their background. And consequently, nearly all thematic ideas are at least partial answers to it. So this sets, sets the field pretty wide open for today's discussion. How do you guys see this issue poking its way into the into the world, not just the one you walk around in, but the one that you read about. Wow. Yeah. I like the, the thought that the, that the question is universal, uh, ubiquitous, that it's at the root of maybe conflict generally in literature and art. And, and even where the subject matter of a work of literature or a work of art is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily take into account the divine the problem that pain and suffering presents to the human mind is important. And it, it makes artists stop and say, wait a minute, how do I explain that? How do I justify that? Um, you know, in the 17th century, John Milton would have said, I want to justify the ways of God to men and assumed an intelligence and a divine personality behind it all. But in the, you know, in the modern age, in the recent age, that's not necessarily presupposition, but the problem persists, as you say. And I think that's a testimony to its importance. Even if there's, if we don't need to justify the ways of God to men, mm -hmm. we have to somehow reconcile what? We have to reconcile the, the fact of pain and suffering with a world that's worth living in, with uh, a technique for surviving, with a fair world. Yeah. If, if there is such a thing. That's interesting. I, it threw me for a loop because the the relatively recent work of art I was going to talk about today does assume a divine presence in the world. I was going to talk about the hmm. Milos Forman film from 1984, Amadeus, starring F. Murray oh. Abraham and Tom oh, Hulsey, yeah. which is about uh, the the composer Antonio Salieri. Right, we're all familiar with the with the movie. It's been around since the 80s. Salieri, give, the, give us a quick precedence. Uh, well, just in case. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Salieri is a um, is a composer of Mozart's era, a contemporary though older than Mozart, based on an actual personage. But they give him all kinds of personality and inject this relationship with all kinds of uh, depth and pathos that you know it might not have had in real life. But he's a he's a hardworking composer, um, although not particularly gifted. He's good enough to be playing at the and composing for the court of Emperor Joseph II or whatever it is, Franz Joseph, but uh, nothing like Mozart. And, and he uh, provides Mozart with access to Joseph II 
And because Salieri is the current court musician and Mozart gets kind of an audience with Joseph due to Salieri's influence. And Mozart is, of course, the presented as the greatest musical genius composer of all time. And so he becomes the favorite of not only the emperor, but also all of Austria. And Salieri is almost immediately in eclipse. And But it's worse than that because he's smart enough to know that he's in eclipse. He's smart enough to know that it's not because of bad luck or political intrigue. He's smart enough to know that he's in eclipse because Mozart is great and he is mediocre. Mm. And the the pain of this situation is intensified by the fact, as we find out as the movie goes along, that Salieri is his one passion in life is music. And he has dedicated his soul to the glory of God in exchange for the ability to create music for his glory, for God's glory and for God's praise. And so the problem of the piece, of course, is Salieri, who, oh, I forgot to tell you this, and you probably know this because we've seen the movie before. Mozart himself is a terrible person, right? Yeah. He is yeah. a, he's a, um, he's a, he's a jerk. jerk. <laughs> <laughs> he's the lowest kind of vulgar, immature, mm-hmm. silly, uh, thoughtless mm-hmm. scoundrel. And so Salieri is just scandalized at every possible level. And so it's, it's not, it's not the situation of, of pain and suffering in the world like hunger or disaster or violence, but it's unfairness. I think that what you said a minute ago, Ian, about fairness, um, seems to be right. The, the thing at issue that gives this movie its, its, um, its power and its punch. Salieri says, um, you know, at various points, he says, I, I sold out to you. I, I swore to serve only you. I forsook everything else in order to glorify you with music and you ignored me. And instead what you did, and he's speaking directly to God. It's not a world without a God. He's actually, you know, he's in a fight with God on this. Instead, what you did was you ignored me and you gave the talent to communicate absolution to the world, real and true and honest forgiveness to a scoundrel who doesn't even acknowledge, acknowledge you. And, and there's the problem of pain right there in, in this, uh, in this movie. And I think it's really poignantly, poignantly put. I really identified myself. <laughs> no, <laughs> mediocrity. I didn't hear that part before. I said, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> it's actually, it's funny that you bring that up the other day and this is not to derail you, but the other day I, I heard that movie mentioned for the first time in a long time. I was watching a, a video, a live stream between two musicians, Jacob Collier and Chris Martin, the front man from Coldplay. Coldplay. And they're playing oh, one yeah. of Chris Martin's tunes because Jacob Collier is like 25 or something. And so his musical hero, of it, the front man of the biggest band in the world from Jacob's childhood is Chris Martin. And here they are now on Even Plains because Jacob has five Grammys to his name or whatever it is. And so, of course, what Jacob Collier wants to do is worship his idol. <laughs> He's there to play Chris's music. Yeah. So they sit down and they start playing a famous tune from Coldplay's discography. And Jacob is just doing his Jacob Collier thing. And if you guys don't know who he is, go listen to him. He's this brilliant jazz musician. And every single time he plays a note, it's prettier than the one that Chris <laughs> Every single time. And, and you can see Chris Martin knowing it. You can see him. You can see him realizing it. And he stops halfway through and he says, I, that's Wow. You know, I'm I'm put in mind of a of a film. Have you ever seen Amadeus? <laughs> oh. And then he and it was really beautiful because oh. he actually was smiling and happy and he said, Listen, yeah, listen, I don't need to be the best. Uh. 
I don't need to be the best. The fact of someone like you in the world is good. Oh, wow. That is beautiful. So maybe that's a, a, a well-adjusted uh, perspective on the issue, but it was the same idea. That's funny. I was thinking there's this great scene in that movie where Mozart is is playing a Salieri tune. And he, he plays it and he goes, I think his line is, a simple tune, but it yielded some good things. And then he <laughs> he plays some very some Mozart variations on it and turns it into a glorious piece of music. And Salieri realizes, it, I may have written the tune, but there's not. I couldn't have done that. It's completely you know completely beyond me. And of course the the music is is rapturously beautiful, and the in the film is a masterpiece. But the kernel of it doesn't really have anything to do with the music. The kernel of it is this 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 offense that Salieri has against God. And the question of how will he, how will he handle it? It's exactly the same as how will I handle the issue of pain and suffering in the world when it touches my life? You know, how will I justify or reconcile or embrace those two things at once? The existence of a God who, who uh, controls and the fact of my, my discomfort. Wow. So does that without, you know, without, um, giving anything away, I guess, if it's even possible, is there, is there an answer of some kind that's suggested in the, in the film? Well, so at one point, Salieri is, um, is having a consultation with a, with a father from the church, a representative of the church. And, and he's, well, he's in an insane asylum because he's tried to commit a murder. And okay. Okay. No spoiler alerts for you. <laughs> from you mom. I all the parts. Love it. That's Only so yeah. mom, just saying. And the, the, he says to the father, leave me alone. And father, uh, I think it's Vogler says, I cannot leave alone a soul in pain. And Salieri says, do you know who I am? And father Vogler says, it makes no difference. All men are equal in God's eyes. Oof. Which is wonderfully ambiguous, right? Because mm-hmm. Salieri could, yeah. could very easily reply, Oh no, they're not. Yeah. Some of them are geniuses. And some of them who want to just praise God with genius are ignored. So Salieri's... But the priest's assertion is 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 actually more specific than Salieri's, right? It's it, a direct contradiction of it Salieri's. It is. It is. But but we have the, the end of this scene uh, where Salieri goes out to have his medicine or his, to have his warm milk or something before his nap. And he leaves Vogler in the, in the chamber, having told his whole story of this amazing... Uh, the um, despair and the conflict that he's had with God and the, the, the priest is overcome. Salieri pats him on the shoulder as they wheel him past the, the father. And he says, he says, um, uh, don't worry. I will pray for you, father. Uh, I, I will, um, let's see. What does he say? I will pray for you, father. Uh, I pray for all mediocrities. I speak for all mediocrities. I am their patron saint. And uh, so his dig, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it's, it's a dig. So, so in the end, Salieri is angry and his response to the problem of pain is to blame uh, the God who is the author of it. He says one, at one point he destroyed his own beloved rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory. He kept me alive to torture 32 years of torture, 32 years of slowly watching myself become extinct until nobody plays my music anymore. So bit, so he embraces the bitterness that's involved, which is obviously one response to that problem of pain, right? Is to say, you could have made it better. You didn't. And so it's not that you're not powerful. It's that you're not good. And this, 
embracing that answer to the question uh, drives them crazy. My goodness. So I guess the, the question that flows directly from that example for me is, okay, so then what about vengeance? Um, and I think that may have something to do with Emily's <laughs> first example. So I'm going to pass the ball over that direction, Emily. What about vengeance? Vengeance? Well, I like, vengeance. I like where this went off because I all I think all thinking about the problem of pain since like the 1800s or whatever is epitomized by Ivan Karamazov who put the question best or the answer best by saying, well, if this is the kind of world we live in, a world in which children, innocent children are, are forced to suffer, I respectfully return my ticket. Mm -hmm. And even though the novel goes on to look at that from all perspectives, it, it remains fixed in literary imagination for a reason. And I think it's because it's honest. It's yeah. an honest response. And, the the desire to have that that wrong reconciled if you might call that vengeance is uh there's something honest about that um what's what's the word i'm looking for it's not just honest but it's it's universal it's uh true it's yeah. it's a true response uh, wrong requires right the the suffering of the innocent requires justice and so I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I am about to unmask myself <laughs> but, and uh, show my true colors. I once had a film professor who asked me who my favorite director was. And when I answered him, he said, well, I have occasionally enjoyed his movies as well, but I'm pretty sure that he's not saying anything important. So here I go. I'm about to apply this director to the most important question <laughs> in literature. Whoa. Um, I am a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, for better or for worse. Oh, and if there's anyone who is completely obsessed with the question of vengeance and righting wrongs, it is him. He has made, I think, nine films at this point, and they are all revenge stories. But I think it's helpful to divide them into two kinds of revenge stories. There's, I've called one half of them cosmic revenge stories and the other half personal revenge stories. But um, the right now, I think the cosmic revenge stories are the most appropriate. And he's made three films that I think fit into this category. It's uh, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and his most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And in each of these stories, he takes a a historical moment of just cosmic injustice, right? Nazism, American slavery in the South, and the Charles Manson cult murders. And he tells an alternative reality tale in which the bad guys get theirs. So, Inglorious Bastards, Hitler is murdered. Arriva Derchi. Yeah, <laughs> Arriva Before he can even uh, cause an, any more harm. He, he's cut off early in his career. The slave owner portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio, in which he should have gotten his Oscar, but a he didn't. Magnificent turn. Uh, he is punished for the way that he has treated his slaves. I'll say punished. Uh, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he is lit on fire, but not quite as violently <laughs> as the the Charles Manson murderers that try to murder Sharon Tate and don't get away with it at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And so in Tarantino's world, he is taking these moments of terrible suffering inflicted upon innocent people, real moments from history, and he's telling a new tale 
in which um, instead of the suffering continuing, it actually meets its just desserts. And I would like to argue that I think that that is not just resonant and satisfying, but I think that's actually a Christian response to these injustices that um, he's searching for some kind of reckoning for the evil that's in the world. And I think that for these stories, it's helpful to remember that the villains are more symbolic than they are individual. Mm-hmm. And his personal revenge stories, which I also would like to talk about, uh, it's... <laughs> I can't believe I'm delivering a lecture on Tarantino <laughs> right now. Do it. <laughs> I love it. So You're doing good. great. <laughs> It's not interpersonal relationships like in his personal revenge stories. These are, they're meant to symbolize, I think, just the problem of pain. That they, They're not faces as much as they are Nazism and slavery and cultish murder. And so the dynamics at play aren't necessarily human. It, it's more on a cosmic scale. He's looking for some kind of remedy to injustice on a cosmic scale, which actually kind of reminds me uh, I don't know if you guys have ever read The Youngest Day by Robert Farrick Capon. It's the end of his Between Noon and Three, and he imagines what heaven will be like. And in his imagination, it heaven redeems all of time and space. And so he imagines a uh, murderer who carries his kidnapped victim off into the woods and slaughters him in our world but in The Youngest Day in Heaven, the murderer and the murdered meet together in the place where the crime happened and they have a beer together and laugh and um, reconcile mm. with one another. And even that moment is redeemed. Whoa. Yeah, even that moment is redeemed. They're able to meet each other in that moment. And the the mysterious reconciliation of The Youngest Day allows them to meet um, as friends even though on earth they were absolutely um, (laughs) enemies, obviously. Um, And I think Tarantino is actually doing something kind of similar in reimagining. It's not, I mean, you could argue that he's trying to play God, but the tone of the movies isn't really a bitter, like finger pointing, telling God what he should be doing. It's a a wistful imagination of a world that could Mm -hmm. have been and that hopefully will be. Yeah. That he's imagining a heaven in which evil really does get what it deserves and and the innocent and the weak and the oppressed are they're they're restored. Uh, at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Sharon Tate gets to live the life that she should have been able to live. Right. <laughs> it sounds um different from the Capon story you mentioned, because in Capon's story, instead of violence righting the wrong, um the violence done through the crucifixion rights the wrong, so the guys share a beer. There's grace as a result. Right, which is why I said it's important to that in these cosmic revenge stories, it's not a it, it's more of the embodiment of evil as opposed to a face. Right. And it isn't that that evil defeats evil. That the instance of violence that he's talking about is just an example of evil being dealt with cosmically speaking, rather than an individual instance of revenge solving something. And I was thinking about it, and actually, it's fire in all three of those stories that that does the cleansing. Right? It's like yeah. a cleansing fire. Oh, cool. So, so go ahead, Dad. I was going to say the the tone of a Tarantino film seems to have bearing on what kind of a response 
it is to the problem of evil. And the tone seems not bitter, but angry, maybe aggressive. It's as if the, it's as if Tarantino himself, the production crew, the the creative team, is saying something along the lines of, "I'll write this wrong. Since the universe has done us a disservice, let's forcibly imagine a better world. Let's bring it into being. Let's um, shake our fist." Is that not the tone that you that you well, let, let me do a little a little segue and kick the ball back over to you, Emily, because I think that's a really good question. But the distinction Emily has already drawn between cosmic revenge stories and personal ones sheds maybe even a little bit more light on how Tarantino actually thinks about that issue, wouldn't you say, Em? Yeah, I think so. And that's what I was going to say. In his he there are two I there are only two personal revenge stories that I'm very familiar with, and that's the Kill Bill volumes and Pulp Fiction. Um, and these stories actually have a different tone than the cosmic revenge stories. Um, I'm just throwing these terms around like they're they're standard. accepted. Yeah, but they're not. I just who says they're great. Go. <laughs> yeah, they're, um, <laughs> they're communicating. Let's go. But in both in in Kill Bill and in Pulp Fiction, it's individuals who set out to seek a personal vendetta of revenge to do what you just said, shake their fist and make right. It happen. So the bride wakes up um, having lost or she wakes up uh after what was supposed to be her wedding and instead she wakes up in a hospital bed and she was pregnant and now she no longer has her child and so she and she's uh it turns out that the man she was going to marry betrayed her um and so she being a hit woman goes around finding the other hit women that she worked with and um taking out her revenge on them one violently by one. murdering them in the first volume yes Con- content warning for volume one <laughs> content warning for tarantino it. just period yeah no kidding but um she yeah she's she is strong in volume one and goes out enacting her revenge but in volume two she actually doesn't kill anyone until the very end when she does finally seek get revenge on Bill. Bill. But um, even though she gets what she wants and she carries out the revenge, there are just moments in the film that stop to contemplate what she's doing. Um, in the beginning of volume one, she kills her first uh, fellow hit woman who was responsible for the suffering in her life. And she does it in front of this woman's daughter. And after she kills the woman, she turns to the daughter and says, I see what I did here. When you come of age, it, you have every right to come after me and, and take your revenge on me. And it it kind of embodies something that's told to her by the man who gives her her samurai sword. And he says, revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. That she's going to be stuck in this constant revolving cycle of revenge and violence, um, showing us that if revenge is carried to its conclusion among human beings, no one will be spared because everyone will deserve to be punished. Everybody's guilty. So on the one hand, justice needs to be served. Wrong needs to be righted. But Tarantino also, and this is also true in Pulp Fiction, Jules decides at the end of the film that he he doesn't want to be a tyrant anymore and that uh revenge maybe really does come from the lord 
as his famous verse famous says. monologue says and he lays down his sword and the one who his partner vincent doesn't and he ends up dying by the sword but jules actually is is spared because and of his act of mercy he's realized that he cannot be the one who seeks revenge that that it belongs to the lord like honest to goodness his words it belongs to the lord and so I do think Tarantino is aware of the fact that um, while justice must be served, human beings don't have the the perspective or the ability to we're, we're not get equipped. it themselves. So yeah. if you take that perspective and then look at the what you call the cosmic revenge stories again, then it looks a little bit more like he is painting a picture of an alternate world where um, there's justice rather than trying to assert some sort of justice. Yeah, he's just imagining what that could be like, like a kind of heaven. Um, that so, the youngest Andrews, Charlie, got me this book for Christmas, two last year, two years ago. A couple of years, I think. Um, it is actually a philosophy textbook for Quentin Tarantino. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, had, it um, is super interesting. But the point that is made in this book by, let's see, the author is Timothy Dean Roth. He notices that in Kill Bill in particular is the film that he works with, even though it's a world of justice, there are moments of mercy that raise their heads and they're undeserved. Mm -hmm. Um, His final paragraph says, in a world without grace, everyone in Kill Bill gets exactly what they deserve. The surprise of the film is that Grace somehow pries its way in without seeming obligatory or contrived. When Beatrix prayerfully whispers thank you uh, at the end of the film, when Bibi, her daughter, is miraculously restored to her, even though she thought she was dead, um, Beatrix prayerfully whispers thank you. Uh, this guy argues it's the film's still small voice. <laughs> that uh, even though, and she's complete. Uh, Beatrix, the bride, is completely on the back foot in volume two. She's She starts out weak and she continues weak. Um, and then miraculously at the end of the film, she is reunited with her daughter. And uh, in this world of violence, it's like it's a moment of grace and poking through um, for her. And uh, it's a hope, a hopeful sign that there maybe is a world outside of the world of violence, a benevolent one. And we don't, we can't see it. We don't have the ability to um, create that narrative for ourselves, but we can hope, even though we can't possibly understand it, just like Ivan, like, I don't think that there actually is an answer in this world among human beings to the problem of pain, but uh, we can see poking through in the cracks in moments of goodness, which shouldn't be available to us in a world of such violence, but there, there they are. Right. Um, that that dead things can come to life and suffering can be redeemed. That's really interesting. I, I like that. It's persuasive because when I think about those three cosmic revenge stories that you mentioned, the choice of villain is. I've always thought that the choice of villain is. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pat is the wrong word, but Nazis mm, really cardboard. Everybody knows yeah. you're supposed to hate the Nazis. <laughs> that you're not saying anything, right? American slavery, really. I mean, we're going to, I mean, that seems like that horse has been beaten already in terms of slavery, bad, Nazis, bad, Charles Manson. We know. Bad. Yeah, we know. So <laughs> if there's, if the, another element is, yeah, we're starting there on common ground and now I'm going to talk about uh, this alternative ending or this idea, this, this weird 21st century imagination of some utopia, mm-hmm. then that makes a lot more sense. 
Yeah, and what kind of a so utopia? Too. I mean, I think that's if that is his idea of what heaven would be like. The the vengeance narrative is heaven the way that it ought to be. Um, kind of count me out. I, I feel like I've been about <laughs> I that. I think you're misunderstanding yeah, me. Actually, you're the point. yeah, the it's not that the killing is the utopia. It's the eradication of evil and the hope for the restoration of Bibi to Beatrix. The, right. the right. reuniting of what was lost and People dead. getting their daughters back. Right. That's the heaven imagination. In the world of personal revenge, he is very clear that we're all on equal terms, that uh, that violence can't be the answer. Otherwise, we're all going to get slaughtered in yeah. the, That's the wood right. process. That's image of the woods. I can see... I can see that what you're saying is that he's... I can follow you if what you're saying is that he's got a theological imagination. And the 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 law driven God of the Old Testament is the one he's after. That eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of justice is what he's really after. Um, but the the God of um, left handed justice, it, it, that God is is the Christian God. I don't know that I could say that he's a Christian. That he has a Christian imagination. Well, I never came here to argue that Tarantino is a Christian. However, I do think that that he hopes for. Something like that. And that in that hope, he shares the hope of all people. Hmm. Right? That he's accessible and understandable. Because you can't, yeah, you can't tell me that you don't well up with righteous indignation at the wrong in the world and hope that there's a remedy and that it's satisfactory to say, well, it has a purpose. There's something that rings hollow about that. And we know it's true with our heads. This is going to get into my second example, and I don't necessarily want to go there. Even if we know that's true with our heads, we don't have the eyes to see that that makes any kind of sense or any is just in it doesn't any kind satisfy of way. even if we know it with our heads. No. I mean, right. One of the things I think to, to weigh in on this whole thing is that in my own experience of Tarantino, he's comfortable giving you the darkest parts of humanity and saying, here it is. And then he sort of looks at you with a knowing look and says, you know, it's true. Don't wriggle out. You can't because this is actually what humanity desires. The human expression, the fallen expression of the need for justice is vengeance. And it's on a straight line. And we're not capable of in and of ourselves producing anything else. And so when he portrays that, I think I'm with Emily. What he's saying is, here's the problem that needs solving. And here's a, here's a, here's a call of hope. Maybe there's a world in which justice is served. Mm-hmm. And and that you're right that it stops short of an orthodox Christian example and that he's quoting the Old Testament instead of the New Testament when he actually takes a verse from Ezekiel <laughs> and gussies it up for Samuel L. Jackson's famous speech. But I do think that the, that the ideas are, are resonant at least. Well, I even think that it, although I'm the one that said that it's an Old Testament depiction of God, I, I think that that reading of the Old Testament is really flawed. I, mm. I just taught an Old Testament um, Bible is lit class this morning on Joseph. And if anybody had any reason to wreak revenge, Joseph did, no right? Kidding. Sold into slavery by his brothers. And he suffers in Egypt. Um, it, it goes from bad to worse. First, he's a slave in Potiphar's household, the captain of the guards. And then uh, his his wife um, lies, and it gets Joseph thrown into prison. So bad to worse, right? For First like his years, brothers, right? Like, oh, yeah. We're talking, uh, he was 17 when his brother sold him into slavery. And he's like, what is he, 37? 39. I think he's 39 
when finally he has made his way all the way down to the bottom and then been elevated by the Pharaoh because he's helped him to understand some dreams and told him that it's God who's, who's interpreting these dreams. And at this point, sitting at the Pharaoh's right hand, his brothers come back into town really needy because there's this terrible famine. And what are they going to do? So they're, they've come to Egypt because they've heard that Egypt is the breadbasket of all civilization at this point. And this has come to pass because God has made it so through these dreams he gave Pharaoh that Joseph interpreted and Joseph's job was to collect all this wheat and he's got it, right? So here they are standing before Joseph, but they don't know that it's Joseph. Joseph knows it's them. We've got a perfect revenge scenario right there. And you get to watch all the power. He's got all the reason. He's Pharaoh's right hand, man. He can, he can affect their demise, man. He can, he can take, he can vent his spleen on them. Not only does he have the power to, um, to refuse to sell them wheat, but he can throw them in prison. You imprison me. I imprison you. And he does for a time. Um, there's a, you can see the drama that's going on in his heart as he contemplates, um, his own need for justice and revenge. But in the final analysis, he breaks down and weeps and offers them forgiveness and provides for them and their families and basically says, you know, you meant it for, for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people. And you can see the reversal of God working there. So anyway, I, what I'm saying, I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, except that I, um, I see even in the Old Testament, God using reversal, but not the kind of reversal that we anticipate. Right. I see what you mean. And that's why I think it's really, again, I emphasize the fact that our enemy is not flesh and blood. And that's what I'm trying to say is true of the cosmic revenge narratives. The enemy is not flesh and blood. It is evil. So I I take your Joseph and I give you David who said, Lord, please kick out the teeth of my enemy. Right. The imprecatory Psalms. Yeah. The Psalms are actually incredibly violent in what David wishes to have done to his enemy. But also we have the promise that the Lord will avenge us and that that isn't for us to do. So right. we have there's to a, wrestle with that as well. There's definitely a, a relatedness, but also a theological jump from uh, everything happens for a reason to vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um the second one doesn't imply a lack of vengeance. In fact, ultimate vengeance is carried out on the cross. Hmm. Yeah, it's I absolutely think that's what true. you're trying to say, and Emily. The cross is the reason that everybody doesn't get what they deserve. Right. Otherwise, they would and should. Wait, to go back to, to Ivan, though, Ivan knows about the cross and he knows about um, the satisfaction that the cross is supposed to give everyone. Uh, in regard to this this need for justice, and he's not satisfied. Well, that's what Emily was saying a minute ago, right? Em? The the um, the fact that God is up there and that the the cosmic scales balance in the sweet by and by isn't sufficient. It isn't right. satisfying to our it's human imagination because you right can't now. hang your hat on it right this minute. Yeah, yeah. So, what are other classic examples? Where did you guys go when you reached backwards instead of into our own moment for? Examples of this question. And let's put, let's make, I mean, we've already mentioned Ivan, right? We've already mentioned the Grand Inquisitor. So unless that was someone's particular example, what what are some other ones? Some other places in literature? Well, Emily, you almost gave it away, up. your classic example. Why don't we talk about that one first? <laughs> well, I looked for, you know, another classic revenge tale and immediately thought of Hamlet, the, the best revenge tale that there is. Um, and... 
talk about, uh, you know, Tarantino is often accused of being uh, very particular about crafting the narrative and talk about someone who is particular about crafting the narrative. <laughs> Enter William Shakespeare. <laughs> Ham- well, Hamlet was so keen on revenge. Or Hamlet himself, yeah. That he refused to do it. He saw his uncle at prayer and decided not to take out his revenge at that moment because it wouldn't be strong enough that he would send his uncle to heaven because he's praying. Um, and he wants to wait for a moment in which his uncle will not be praying because the ve- the vengeance that he crafts has to be so complete. That but that's even an acknowledgement of the mercy of God and an attempt to spite it, right? Yep. He, Hamlet wants to be God in that moment. He wants to craft the narrative and deliver the justice that he thinks the king deserves until the end of the story when right before he actually does go out on the stage right before the final bloodbath he turns to Horatio and says that he has had trouble sleeping he said he felt like a mutant in the bilbos which is a mutineer in jail under under ship and a mutineer is someone who usurps authority and that's exactly what hamlet has been doing um and that's right before he he goes out and he utters his famous line uh there's a divinity that shapes our ends rough hew them how we will Hmm. Uh, and even though he is about to go out and lose his life there's a moment where he acknowledges that he's been a hack job at trying to play judge and that even in spite of that there is something outside of him directing his efforts. Craft. He's not the author. Yeah. Ultimately, there's another author, author crafting the narrative. And that Hamlet's perspective is too limited to see justice delivered. But there is another author out there that will oh, give it. I think of the, the perfect ancient analog to Salieri's uh, struggle with God in the story of Job from the Old Testament, mm. who has the same whose whose situation it has the same contours job who has made a lifestyle out of righteous conduct and proper sacrifices and keeping his nose clean and has said is essentially what Salieri said i will serve you with my whole life and i will do everything for your glory and in this case it's it's religious observance and leading his family in religious observance and god instead of repaying him with you know, musical genius and talent or uh, prosperity and peace in, in, yeah, flocks and herds in Job's case, right? Allows Satan to come and take away all that he has and ruin his health. And so he sits in a little (laughs) pile of ashes and, and prays to die or his God, you know, prays to be relieved of his suffering. And his wife tells him to curse God and die. And so his situation is the same. And it's not only that, but the, his initial response to his situation is the same. Uh, it's Salieri-esque in, in every detail. I mean, when he's goaded, you know, by his three friends who come to the, to the campfire to comfort him, um, they all, uh, well, they goad him into basically accusing God of injustice and, uh, giving vent to his, um, what do you call it? His, his, uh, rage at God. In fact, at one point he says, he says, you know what? I mean, this is paraphrase, right? He says, he's hiding from me. And I wish I could find him and, and nail his feet to the floor. And he says, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. In other words, I would explain exactly to God just how unjust he's been to me. He says, I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. And you kind of get a, a sense of sarcasm in those, uh, those verses, at least in English. I'd like to see him explain himself. 
And then then Job justifies himself. He knows the way that I take. When he's tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is hold fast to his steps. You can hear Salieri saying, I dedicated my life to writing music for his glory. Job says, I have kept his way and not turned aside. Salieri says, I have forsaken um, the life of of a family. Job says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. Salieri says, I've practiced every day, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, very similar. And uh, finally, um, the difference comes in, I think, in that the God of Amadeus is, is silent. It's not a story about God, right? It's a story about Salieri, who shakes his fist eventually into an empty heaven, and, um, you know, Mozart is a genius and Salieri is a mediocrity because some people are geniuses and some people are mediocrities. And part of his insanity is believing that God has willed it. In the Job story, it's obviously different because the, the penultimate situation is Job shaking his fist into the face of heaven. God actually comes down and says, no, I'm here and I have good and sufficient reasons and we get a world that instead of having God pasted over the top of it, as in Amadeus, where everyone speaks in Christian terms, we have a world that's actually animated by God, the person. And God says, among other things, I do things my own way and you won't, you can't understand them. That's kind of what Emily was alluding to a little bit before. They're not going to be satisfying because they're inscrutable to you. But that isn't a capricious on my part. It's just that I'm God and you're a creature. And so it's obviously going to be inscrutable. It's too big. It's too deep. But there's one little part in the, in the story of Job that I think resonates with what Missy was saying about mercy triumphing over judgment in the story of Joseph. Because um, God reveals himself in Job not as a capricious sovereign who does things for his own purposes and doesn't tell you just because he's mean, but he does things for Job's good. Uh, at one point, Elihu, the advisor, the last advisor to Job says, Behold, God does all these things. Take your clothes, take your health, take your children. God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. And so, you know, whether or not it's satisfying in the moment God explains himself and says, I'm after your true allegiance. I'm after your true worship. I'm after the health of your eternal soul. And it turns out Job's been playing with the health of his eternal soul. He's got an idolatry problem, right? Where he's worshiping his own greatness. And so God is knocking down his idol in order to to preserve uh, his heart. But the thing about the Job story that I love is that it's suffused with God, the person, the personality of God. And so Job actually has a revelation. He actually sees with, with spiritual eyes the truth of what God is saying and has an experience with God so that his mind is changed. And he repents, right, of, of the, of the anger and the more, more basically the attempt to control his own world. But I, but I wanted to mention that because it seems to support um, what you guys have been saying about in this world, if we take human things only, uh, the little religious explanation of the problem of pain is unsatisfying. Hmm. That what's necessary is an intervention of the actual God explaining himself, revealing himself in order to change our minds. And for that, all of us human beings uh, 
are dependent on something else happening. We're waiting for a resolution. And I think that's one of the things that the story of Job teaches us. It's one of the things that it suggests and what sets it apart from more modern examples mm. that this God who in whose will there is actually an explanation intervenes in a man's experience. But oh, please go ahead. I was just going to, I was just think. I'm still thinking back here about Ivan, Ivan Denisovich and, um, Karamazov. no, not Ivan Denisovich, uh, Ivan Karamazov from our earlier conversation. Yeah. I, I well, Ivan Denisovich suffered too, but anyway, um, it is hard though. <laughs> Ivan Karamazov. Yeah. I know they all do. All at the Russians. beginning of that novel, I was remembering that scene where um, he's gathered with the rest of his family and he's having a conversation about an article that he wrote that pronounces atheism, right? Um, the death of God. It, um, in a world without objective truth, anything is is acceptable. Permissible, anything yeah. is permissible, he says. And uh, Father Zosima, the, the religious authority that's there on the scene, kind of sees behind his argument and says, um, you don't really believe that. The truth is you're making that argument to distract yourself from the larger question. Um, you're too smart and uh, too human to believe that. But because of this problem of pain and suffering, you pose this um, this argument about reality being nothing more than material and there being no such thing as an objective truth. And so you can do whatever you want. But I see you. I see you. I see that you're truly suffering in this situation. And it's not until later in the story that... Ivan is confronted with his own idea about this idea that anything is possible because there really is no truth. There is no objective reality in the world. When someone who shall remain nameless um, does a deed that shall remain, remain nameless. Well done. That, yeah, thank you. Mm. Thank you. I, I deserve props for that. That undoes him utterly so that he thinks, oh my gosh, that's not okay. You can't do that. And his own words come back at him and, um, well, you said everything was permissible. In a world like this, I merely acted on it. And he's confronted, um, and he begins to suffer psychological torment as a result of this issue until the devil himself walks in to have a little philosophical conversation with him about this very issue. I think God bless the Russians. Yeah, I think that, um, that needs to be framed around what you were talking about, where Ivan says, I respectfully return my ticket because he does eventually have an encounter with what is real. He fabricates reality and he tries to weasel out of the problem of pain and suffering, but there's no weaseling out at all because there really is an objective reality in the world. And that objective reality works on him to unman him through pain and suffering so that he can have a real encounter with truth. So um, I, I keep thinking about this because it's so similar to the Job scenario, not because Job, like Ivan, denied objective truth. But because he he lived like his own actions were all there were, really. His own ability to satisfy God, to, um, you know, to jerk the cords of heaven with his pious behavior uh, and all of that sort of thing, um, that, that it was really all up to him. And in Job's case, um, it was a severe mercy of God that he allowed the devil free reign in order to give Job an experience with a living God. Pull his soul back from the pit. Yeah, that right? pulled his soul back from the pit, like you said, and that um, freed him up from the anxiety that was inherent in believing that it was all up to him. And I wonder if that's not what's going on in in Ivan's world. I th you might be right well. about that. You really might be right about that, but it, what it does is it takes me to to this place, and this might be a little bit of a of a rabbit trail. But I keep thinking about 
how what hangs up Ivan is the suffering of children. And there's an author that we talk about all the time who writes about that. Gary Schmidt writes about that all the time where children suffer. But Megan, what do you, what from the Gary Schmidt world, is there an answer to this question? Is, are, are there stories that take up the problem of pain really specifically? And if so, how do you, how would you link them to the conversation? Ooh, Gary Schmidt books in particular. That's what I was thinking. I mean, he's the author that jumped to mind, but if you've got another one, mostly I'm just thinking that this, this, this issue is not restricted to adult art. I mean, I think it's, it's more human than that. It's, it's in kids books too. Yeah, I don't have a formulated answer uh, necessarily to that question. I just I agree with you that Gary Schmidt is the is top of mind when it comes to children relating to the problem of pain. In each of his stories, he's got a kid who's right on the cusp of uh, adolescence who has experienced some kind of loss or some some shaking scenario that tests him somehow. Usually, it has to do with a parent. So some kind of structure of the family is being influenced and the kid is suffering as a result from having to mature too fast. And what I notice looking at all of his books in a row is that the suffering causes the kid to look outside himself for relief. And so I can hear that in all of your answers so far to this, this problem of pain. It's, a, it's something that reminds us of our own finiteness and uh, turns our eyes upward in a hopeful kind of way for an answer to our cry, for evidence that someone is watching, uh, and and hope for relief of some sort. And I think that because Gary Schmidt's writing for kids and writing about kids, that hope is really, um, it's new and fresh in every book. It's very, it's the emphasis for sure. Rather than wallowing in the pain part, he uh, he really roundly and soundly offers you the the hope, the hope of the resurrection at the end. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. That makes me think again about the Tarantino movies that Emily suggested mm-hmm. because I never before today have I thought that that there is something optimistic and hopeful <laughs> in a Tarantino revenge story. It's totally but true. there is. Yeah. In these terms there, is, there kind of is, right? He's imagining a world where evil gets it, gets his. Right. Where, yes, where there is some that? kind of outside force that is going to balance the scales in the end. Yeah, yeah, because the villain is so obviously bad and he's so thoroughly defeated. You just go, yeah! Dude, not to end, bring right? it full circle or anything, but this is why we love the outlaw Josie Wales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because in the end, oh, the villain gets his, right? I know. Yeah. yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah. I'm telling you. We're all writing about the same thing when it gets right down to it. And I think the problem of pain may have something to say about it. Oh, uh, well. Mm. Well, you guys, thank you so much for, for your insights as usual. I thought that was wonderful. I enjoyed that very much. I, for one, am going to go watch a Tarantino movie and read a Gary <laughs> Schmidt book. And it's going to be a great yeah. night. Oh, yeah. Do the, which one do you do first uh, in that? Yeah. For, for my money, it's drawn to gold is what you do. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah baby. Drawn to gold, A little assertion man. of providence does the soul good. Or my new favorite, okay for now, Lord have mercy. It's so beautiful. I have, I it's another Gary Schmidt, just so you know. Well, friends, um, you take take our Gary Schmidt references and, of course, the book of Job as recommendations out into your evenings and advisedly take Tarantino as a recommendation <laughs> as well. <laughs> He's really, really fun. He's really fun. Yeah, be your own. Look out for fire hoses full yeah, of beer. Yeah, exactly. No. Full of fake blood. <laughs> blood. Yeah, right. Exactly. Maybe also beer. Who knows? Oh, my goodness. Well, thanks again, you guys. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. And until we meet again for another great question. Happy reading.
Happy reading. Happy, Happy reading. Thank you for joining us. In our next episode, we'll be moving on to sunnier fields with a discussion of our next great question. What is a good friendship? Until then, please stop by our Bibliophiles Facebook group and say hi. We love hearing what you have to add to the conversation. And if you like what you hear, you may want to check out our Pelican Society membership program, where members can participate in live book club discussions with the Center for Lit crew. We hope to see you around. And until next time, my friends, happy reading.